Morning, Bethel. All right, well, our scripture reading from this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. It's chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 877. So that's Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, page 877 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 18. And then he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Oh, man, that was so encouraging to sing. I needed to hear the gospel. I needed to sing the gospel. I hope that um, you felt similarly. And I think James Miller definitely has got it right. So we need to learn from him. You know, out of the mouths of babes, you've ordained praise. Thank you, James, for leading us um, in how we ought to respond to, uh, to these truths that we've been singing. So that's really encouraging. So here we are in Isaiah at chapter 62. Can you believe it? We've got four more messages in the book of Isaiah. So this morning and three more, Lord willing, unless things change. Um, crazy. We've been in here a little while, and um, we find ourselves in chapter 62. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 62, we're going to read the text together. Isaiah 62, it's on page 621 if you're using the Pew Bible. All right, like last week, why don't we do this? Let's read it together, okay? We're all participating. Sunday morning is active. It's not a spectator sport because we're engaging with God himself through his word. So we all need to hear from him. All right, Isaiah 62, ready? For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, 
and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This is God's word. All right, so we have said many times um, over the years that there is this now but not yet dynamic going on in the Christian life, or an already but not yet, things that are already true but they're not fully realized yet. So the renewal of all things, the making of all things new, it's already begun through Jesus when he came and lived and died and rose again. And even as he makes us new as Christians, when we are born again, we're made new, it's begun, it's inaugurated through Jesus, but it's not yet been consummated, right? So we live in this time in between. That is hugely important to understand in our heads, but it's also hugely important to get in our hearts, in our lives, practical application in life. And our passage this morning is about practical application of how to live between the times, between, for us, the cross and the promises of God that are not yet fully realized. So the already but not yet. So that POW is one idea of how it can impact. You can see how that would change everything, even if you're still in the prison, because hope has come. So there's more of that in this passage this morning. So I was reminded this week of a video that I saw a couple years ago. It's done by a couple guys out in Portland. One's a pastor, and he's also a professor, and then another who's an entrepreneur, started a couple of communication companies. And it is really helpful, and I think it'll be really helpful for us even to see it before we dive into Isaiah 62. Um, I'm going to post uh, some links on the blog this week so you can check out more of their videos. They're really good. Um, like if you're studying the book of the Bible, they might have already done a little introductory video for it, and so you would definitely um, benefit from checking it out. But anyway, we're going to watch this video, and then we'll keep the framework that they share in mind as we dive into Isaiah 62. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about 
temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. We believe the best way to understand the Bible is to look at its overall narrative. So we're going to do this by taking individual themes and tracing them throughout the storyline of the whole Bible. We also do this by making videos that focus on one book of the Bible, looking at the literary... Um, on their site. So isn't that helpful? It's really clear. So I think it's going to be really helpful um, for a lot of different places, understanding God's word and how it applies to our life. But it's definitely going to help us in Isaiah 62. So let's, let's dive in. Okay, so keep that framework in mind as we go through this passage. Um, we're going to start with the making of all things new in this passage, and there's a lot of it. So start in verse 2, okay? 
The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings shall see your glory. So who is this speaker talking about? We're going to have to figure out who this speaker is, but who's this speaker talking about? The your righteousness, your glory. Well, it's Zion, it's Jerusalem. If you look back at verse 1, you see it there, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake until her righteousness goes forth, her salvation, the nation shall see your righteousness and your glory. So does that mean that we're just talking about the ancient city of Jerusalem? Well, originally it did speak of that, but it's bigger than that because in the Bible, Zion or the, the Jerusalem didn't only end up referring to the literal ancient city of God, city of David, okay, where God dwelt with his people in the temple, but it also comes to represent the city of God, like the people of God, the place where God came down and dwelt with his people, the place where God dwells with his people. So spiritual reality, spiritual city. Okay, similarly, Babylon in the story of the Bible is used to refer to the literal you know, kingdom of Babylon, but then it becomes something bigger in the storyline of the Bible. It comes to refer to the world in its fallenness. Okay, so Zion comes to refer to the city of God. Babylon comes to refer to the city of man. Okay, so I'm not making this up. You can look at Revelation 17, 5, where it talks about Babylon the Great as the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Or Hebrews 12, when the writer is writing, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, not a mountain that can be touched with hands like Mount Sinai, okay, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? So for us on this side of the cross, when we talk about Zion or the Jerusalem or the, the city of God, we're talking about the church, okay? The people of God gathered from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So that's what's going on here as far as the fulfillment is concerned. The nations will, will eventually see our, the church, our righteousness, our glory, all the world shall see it. There's going to be this cosmic acknowledgement one day of who we are. You shall be called, see the next phrase there, by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So this is coming. It's echoed in Revelation 3 when Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Temple, not a literal temple, but the place where God dwells with man, right? Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, this new Jerusalem, city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and I'm going to write on him my own new name. Okay, so this is coming. For God's people, this is our future. A new name implies a new nature, a new identity with new possibilities. Okay, naming was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. It's a big deal still in some cultures, but in many it's not that big of a deal. But think through some of the Bible's storyline. Just take one example. Remember Jacob? Why did God change Jacob's name to Israel, because he had striven with God and prevailed. So his name represented, in a sense, a new day with new possibilities, new identity, his character. The old Jacob was a deceiver, right? And he used to go after blessing by taking matters into his own hands. But this new Jacob, Israel, realized that the only true blessing comes from God. And he wrestled with him because he said, I'm not going to let go of you till you bless me. Okay? So, do you see how this is an already but not yet thing that's going on here? There's newness, but we await the fullness of that newness. We are new, but we're not totally new. Remember that quote by John Newton where he says, I'm not what I ought to be, 
I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I'm not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. So new, but not totally new. But we live in this in-between, right? And there's a lot of struggle here, so we oftentimes get down on ourselves and focus on all that we are not. Anybody with me? I mean, have you noticed, those of you that are with me here, have you ever noticed how self-loathing becomes self-fulfilling prophecy? Like getting down on yourself gets you down all the more. Like I'm worthless. Does that help you actually walk in a manner worthy of your calling? No, it really doesn't. It kind of like paralyzes you. So we don't believe our calling oftentimes, who we are, and it's this nasty, self-perpetuating cycle, and we end up in the, in the ditch. So how do you break out of that in between, you know, living in this tension that the already but not yet? We break out of it by believing the gospel. Like, was anybody broken out of it this morning when we were singing those songs? by listening to God and not the lies in our heads or in the world around us. So we need to drink in the grace of God that's ours through Christ, all these promises that are true, even though we've only just begun to taste their fulfillment. We need to drink that in. It's all ours through Jesus, all these very great and precious promises, like the one in verse 3. Let's keep going. You shall be, this, this is already in a sense begun, but it's not yet fulfilled, but it's coming. Like, we need to believe this. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It's crazy. (laughs) Like, there's a really interesting thing going on in Isaiah. Back in chapter 28, verse 5, it says, in that day, the day when God shows up to deliver his people, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So do you see how it turns it the other way around? So we used to run after the crowns of this world, which once God opens our eyes, we see that they're nothing more than just Burger King paper crowns. You know, like what money can do and, you know, prestige and and power, whatever. It's just Burger King crowns. They're all worthless. Um, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote this once. He said, can this really be what life is about as the media insists, this endless soap opera going on from century to century, whose old discarded sets and props litter the earth? Surely not. Was it to provide a location for so repetitive and vulgar a performance that the universe was created and man came into existence? I can't believe it. If this were all, then the cynics and the suicides would be right. The most we could hope for from life is some passing amusement, some gratification of our senses, and death. But it's not all. As Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that royal crowns roll in the mud, and every earthly kingdom must sometime flounder, whereas we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone. We are citizens of the city of God that man did not build and cannot destroy. So, so now, by grace, what we once treasured, we've counted as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as our king and being a part of his kingdom. And by grace, he makes us new, reforging and forming us into a crown of beauty in his hand. So when we come alive to, to his glory and goodness, he becomes our treasure, the crown in our hands, And he is making us into the crown, the treasure in his hands. Okay, listen to what it means that the crown is in his hand and not on his head. It's actually significant. Alec Motier, an Old Testament commentator, wrote this. He said, to be in his hand is to be kept, guarded, and upheld. To be a crown is to be that which expresses kingliness, Not the exercise of royal power, the wearing of a crown, but the possession of royal worth and dignity. The Lord's people will be the sign that he is king. So guess what? That whole like ugly self-perpetuating cycle when we, you know, give way to self-loathing 
and go in the tank, the gospel turns it around. And there's a wonderful self-perpetuating cycle when we actually believe these promises that are true of us. Believing that we are God's treasured possession, not because of anything in us, but because of everything that he has done for us by grace alone. We believe those things, and it ends up strengthening us and shaping us and making us walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So be encouraged, struggling Christian. Like, I'm in that category. I don't know if anybody else is with me. Listen, everything that frustrates you about you, where you're at presently, the stuff that drives you nuts, that you hate about yourself, the stuff that you keep struggling and bumping into, you're not what you want to be. One day, all of that will be nothing but sweetness and beauty, and all will be well and right in your soul, and then not to mention in in the whole world. Like when those two bubbles you know, completely become one and the new Jerusalem comes down and everything is made new. No more shame, no more frustration, no more loneliness, no more ineffectiveness, no more discouragement, no more marginalization, no more being ignored, no more being mocked or rejected. Look at verse four. You shall no more be termed forsaken. You feel like that's a label over your life sometimes? You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land shall be called Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. See, they would have heard a name, Hebrew speakers. They're translating it because we don't know what in the world Hephzibah means or Beulah means, right? So they're translating it for us. But you know there's names in our culture that mean things. And you say the name, and people know what it means. So that's what would have happened here. Wait, we're going to be called, my delight is in her? That, that, that's how God, that's the label over our lives? Married, not desolate and forsaken? So you can imagine, original context, here's these people in exile. Their temple's been burned to the ground. Their land is left in ruins and desolate. They're off in Babylon. Babylon. Everybody that passes by Jerusalem at this time is saying, God-forsaken place. So have you ever screwed up in someone, or maybe your own, you're saying it about yourself, something like, you call yourself a Christian. In other words, you just must be a God-forsaken place. Well, the gospel speaks into that desolation. God was making promises to them while they were still in exile, promises of renewal. And we, the church, can seem like a desolate wasteland, can't we? So can our lives. I mean, has he forsaken his church? It can be discouraging to look around, look around in our country, see what's going on, look around in our own lives, look around in our own church. We can feel more like tumbleweeds than fruitful trees planted by streams of water. Well, do we have ears to hear? (laughs) Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church, for us, so that this could be said over us. You shall be called, my delight is in her. So those names, Hephzibah, Beulah, they might sound quaint, but no, these are wonderful. These are wonderful names. Imagine an honorable, strong husband who's been perfectly faithful and a wife who has been unfaithful, and then he pursues her and wins her back. And imagine that he doesn't hang her sin over her head. Instead, amazingly, he calls her with these sweet, affectionate, like pet names, and he, and he means it. He, he only hangs his love and delight over her head. That's our Savior. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. The Lord delights in you. It's kind of hard to actually hear that and receive it, isn't it? We kind of hold it out at arm's length. No, no. if you're a Christian, the Lord delights in you. 
Do you believe that, Christian? Do we believe that, church? We need to. We need to know who we are and who we will be and whose we are. We're already spoken for. We're not alone. We're not forgotten. We are loved with an everlasting love. Okay, this, this marriage theme is all over the Bible. Hosea 2, God comes to this adulterous wife of, a, of his people. They've been so unfaithful, and he says, I'm coming after you. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That know, that ought to like cause us to blush almost. If there's like a spiritual blushing. Hey, remember Adam knew his wife? Whoa, here's in the marriage context. The Lord says we will know him. That's the kind of intimacy he's after. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And then verse 5, look at it. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. I know that sounds weird. Um, that phrase could be translated dwell in, but there's, there's more of an emotional connotation than just dwelling in. The point is, there's like this emotional ownership. They're all in. They love their city. You get it? Like, this is home. So they're all in. They're married to their city. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This one was really hard for me to believe. I remember the first time I really started to believe it. So I was doing a wedding in Vermont. Like, I don't know how long ago this was. 15 years ago, something like that. It's a guy in our college ministry, and, you know, he was from Vermont. His wife is from Vermont. And so flew there for this wedding, and it's this old New England church. You know how these old New England churches are, like, a couple hundred years old? It's, like, one-room thing. And, like, you, the back door, you could see it, and the steps out. So when the door's open, the light streams in. So there was a balcony up here, and I'm up front, and here's the groom. And so the bride was going to actually enter from outside into the church. And there, this is so cool, there was a trumpet that sounded, like, in the balcony. And the doors opened, and the light, the sunlight streamed, streamed in from behind them and kind of, like, illuminated the bride on the arm of the Father. And the, the most beautiful thing, I almost lost it, I, I did kind of lose it, is uh, this young man, David, he saw his bride and he, I could just, I'm looking over his head and he just swelled and he started bouncing on his tiptoes as he anticipated the wedding with his bride. He had looked forward to this day he was rejoicing over his bride. And I went away from that weekend wrestling with, is that really how Jesus feels about us? Like, can I really believe that? And then you read passages like Philippians 1 where Paul says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So, I know me on my wedding day, I was like, woohoo, I'm still like, woohoo, okay? Why do you think God uses this image? I don't know, Greg, you looking forward to wedding day? Is that going to be a good day? I think so. Just had the shower yesterday for Maddie. It's awesome. Good to have you guys here. It's because it means something. And enough of the naysaying kind of garbage, like, well, oh, just wait. Okay, set that aside. We need to, like, say hell with all that garbage in the church and fight for marriage that it'd be beautiful from beginning to end. But anyway, it's another sermon. So the day, like, that means something. The groom rejoicing in his bride means something, and we need to believe it. That's God toward us. What if we actually believe that? Amen. 
So C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son or a husband and his bride. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. I quoted it last week, but it bears repeating. It's, again, it's so hard for us to believe. Zephaniah 3.16, On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. But that's not all. That's not all the newness promised in this passage. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, which in the context of Isaiah, we won't go into kind of showing it, but the right hand of Yahweh in Isaiah is the Messiah. So by his anointed one, he will make these promises happen. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, or foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you've labored. Now that doesn't probably hit us as a sweet promise immediately because, you know, what, is, uh, what does that mean? Well, covenant curses in Deuteronomy, if the people rebelled, Deuteronomy 28, 33, a nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors and you shall be oppressed and crushed continually. So that's the situation. I mean, remember Gideon? Why is he threshing wheat in a wine press? To hide it from the enemies because they were going to come in and just take it away. So what is this? This is the reversal of the curse through Jesus, the reversal of the effects of our sin. No more futility. Is that good news? No more frustration when things we've worked so hard for just slip through our fingers like sand. Verse 9, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. So this peace and this fullness isn't just a matter of no more threats. It's this covenantal delight in God's presence. Just as those who sacrificed in the Old Testament, they ate some of the meat that they sacrificed, giving thanks to God for his forgiving, atoning grace. So we will eat and drink at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Remember that? That little story on the thing? In the new heavens and the new earth. So the Passover, it was a foreshadowing. It anticipated the deliverance to come, and then it became a celebration of the deliverance that had come. Lord's table, same thing. Celebration of deliverance and an anticipation of the feast. This is what's coming. Total reversal of the curse. This is what will be, what has already begun, and what will be. We need to believe this. But listen, isn't it so hard to believe this so often, like Monday morning? I mean, the renewal is so slow, it often seems to be stalled. It seems to be turning back, like one step forward, three back, right? Does your life ever feel that way? And oftentimes, there's plenty of the city of man in the church, right? The church is supposed to be the city of God, and there's like infighting and backstabbing and hypocrisy and judgmentalism, and we've got all our own mess and stuff and whatever, and so do they. And so it's so easy for these promises to seem so unreal, to maybe not even think they're true, or at least not true for us. So what should we do? Well, maybe you saw what we should do in the verses that we skipped. Look at verse 1. Point number 2, and these next two points are shorter. So, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is likely Isaiah speaking here. He's saying, I'm not going to stop praying and speaking the truth until the people of God are fully renewed. Until these glorious promises are experienced, our experienced reality. 
So he's a part of the faithful remnant. Isaiah is not going to shut up or give up until the people of God are radiantly reflecting the grace and truth of God. He's praying for God's kingdom to come. And he's speaking the truth in love so that the city of God will be built up and blessed. So we are a part of the people of God. Are you praying for Zion? Okay, which is people of God, which means praying for the church, for our church, praying for the church around the world. I mean, are you concerned about her? Are you longing to see her established and built up? Is that on your radar screen? Do you see how these prayers, this labor, is how our light will be a radiant beacon for our neighbors and for the nations? Like, we have a part in this. Our mission statement, we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the good of all peoples, for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Well, do you oftentimes reflect the infinite worth of God or do you reflect the fact that you love all kinds of other things more than God? So how's that going to change? Help. Lord, Hosanna! Save me from my stupid, misordered loves and affections and priorities. Change me so that I can be a beautiful reflection of your grace and truth to the world. Change our church. Make us radiant. Continue to just make it happen. So you're going to discuss it in community groups, but think about just your prayer life over this last week or month. How much are you praying for the building up of the church in terms of maturity and beauty and expansion? Are you praying for our church? If not, why? The church is God's plan A, folks. Now, churches don't all look like the same. Some meet under a tree, some meet in a house, but the church is God's plan A. It's the center of his purpose. It's the only thing he promised to build, and he uses us to build it. He brings us into it, and then he uses us to build it. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. Anybody? Amen? <laughs> so we need to pray for us. We need to pray that we will burn brightly so our neighbors and the nations will be drawn to his light. And we're only going to be that by supernatural grace and strength. So it continues. Look at verse 6. Same idea. On your walls of Jerusalem I've set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he, is, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Those two circles, when they totally come together that we saw on that video. Do you see what God inspired to be written here, to be commanded of us? He wants us not to give him any rest. <laughs> That's that passage Tyler read, Luke 18, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that theme is struck again and again and again in the New Testament. Ask, seek, knock, watch and pray. Stay alert, stay awake, pray without ceasing. Give God no rest until we all enter the rest. So as culture gets darker, the threat, you know, threats to the church, maybe that she would accommodate, that she would compromise, that she would cave in in the pressure. Like that's a real concern. That ought to concern us. We want to pray, Lord, don't let us hide our light under the bushel. Let's have our lamp on the stand where it belongs so that we can shine with the light of Jesus. We've got to be alert and awake and act like watchmen on the walls, praying and laboring that the church would shine and grow brighter in the midst of the darkness. For instance, just one example to stick with the marriage theme. So there's sexual craziness in our, in our culture, right? And we're going to be out of step, folks, People are going to think we're regressive and, you know, and repressive and everything else. But what if we prayed that the marriages in the church of Jesus Christ were so beautifully radiant and so otherworldly that they were like a living endorsement of the wise design that we proclaim? Instead of the ugliness that's in the church just like it is in the world, well, it doesn't make any difference in your lives, obviously. Why should we believe you? This is dumb. You guys are on the wrong side of history. 
It's just one example. So finally, point number three, seek the city. Verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people. What does that mean? Again, we live in this already, but not yet. We not only pray that God's kingdom come and that the city of God be established, but we also labor and do all we can to build it up and expand it. So first, we've got to go through. Like, you only enter this city through Jesus. He's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes in except through him. So fully enter in, be all in ourselves. We're all in exile by nature. We're separated from God. We need to be brought home through Jesus. And we're all, already but not yet, we're all on pilgrimage to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So once you're a part of this kingdom, once you're, you've entered in, then you actually work to prepare the way for others. Use your gifts to build up the kingdom, to build up the city, to remove obstacles to other people entering. So think about your neighbors. If they don't know Jesus, well, what can you do to tell them about him? Help them see that Jesus is the way and the truth in life. Maybe some of those people were burned by the church or burned by religion. There might be some, some stones you can take out of the way that are tripping them up. You see it there? Remove the obstacles. Clear it of stones. You can show them that that misrepresentation that others gave of who Jesus is, that it, it's not true. Or, you know what? How about this? Maybe some of us have some stuff to, to own up to. Have you misrepresented Jesus in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Maybe the clearing of the stones could be going to that coworker, family member, neighbor, and saying, you know what? I'm sorry. I need to apologize for the way that I acted if it was 15 years ago. Or maybe it was yesterday. Because you know what? I, I'm a Christian. And that really misrepresents who Jesus is and what he's all about. So would you forgive me? And maybe that opens a door for you to invite them in. Because you've cleared away the stone. And then think about the nations. There's people that don't even have the Bible in their own language. That's an obstacle. Some have never heard. So there's a lot of preparing and, and building up of the road that needs to be done. And also you can think about just building up the body, the church, as far as us being healthy and radiant. You have gifts. If you're not using them, use them for the building up of the body. Everybody, no armchair, you know, kind of like this is everybody participating. So if you're not engaged, this is a call to get engaged for the good of the church. Finally, you see this phrase, lift up a signal over the peoples. We've got to lift up a signal. Well, back in Isaiah 49, God says he's going to lift up his hand to the nations and raise his signal to the peoples, and people are going to be brought in, something God was going to do. And a signal back then is like an army banner or a standard for a kingdom. It also is used of that serpent on a pole in Numbers. Remember, people looked to that serpent and they were healed. And then in John, it talks about Jesus being lifted up so that people look to him and they're saved. Okay, so the servant in Isaiah is lifted up. John again, I will be lifted up and draw all people to me. So Jesus is this signal. And here we are called to be the ones to lift him high so that the nations can be drawn to him. Our neighbors can be drawn to him. Okay, so Jesus came to bring the kingdom and he went to prepare a place for us. We need to come and enter fully into the kingdom and then we go and prepare the way for others to join us, to come in. So we seek the city of God. It's our homeland. It's the center of what we long for. Your kingdom come. And we need to light the beacons we need to throw open the doors wide for others 
to come in and join us. So if you see the the big picture structure here, the promises of all this grace in verses 2 to 5 and 8 to 9, they're intended to awaken our longing and our prayer so that we pray for these things to happen and our labor so that we work for these things to happen. Does anybody here like city building games? I'm not one of them, but there's a lot of people that like SimCity and Skylines. I don't even, that's like one of the more popular ones. Um, Minecraft even, kids. Farmville on Facebook, never done that, I don't know. Settlers of Catan, board games. Monopoly Your Life even. At some point in your life, do you know somebody that's like this? But see, be a city builder of a city that will last. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So this chapter ends, the final two verses. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion. So I'm saying it to us, the church, this morning. Behold, your salvation comes. He has come. He's coming again. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they, we, shall be called the holy people. It's it's already started. It's going to be fully realized. We shall be called the redeemed of the Lord, and we shall be called sought out and a city not forsaken. How about that for identity, for security? Do you know who you are? we, We know where we're headed. We know who we are. We know whose we are. And in the strength that he supplies, let's build up his church, lifting high the signal of our crucified Savior that he might draw all people to himself. And let's not be silent, but let us give our great, gracious Redeemer God no rest until we enter his rest. So we're going to close by singing that Hosanna song again, which is so appropriate because we're saying, we're not going to give you any rest until you save us, until you do this. You have redeemed us, but we we want the fullness of that freedom. We so easily still get enslaved to our sin. So keep saving us. Hosanna. So let's keep singing and praying this song long after this morning, like as in until we die, until Jesus returns. And let's pray and not lose heart. So musicians, come on up. We'll sing that and then we'll be done. Lord, Hosanna. Save us, and through us, save others. In Jesus' name, amen.